we're going to pick back up in Acts chapter 16, which is where we left off last time we were together in Acts 16. And I just want to, just a quick recap of what we read in the first part of that passage. Um, We had Paul and Silas who were on their way to pray. They were on their way to worship and they encountered a young slave girl who was empowered by a demonic spirit to be able to uh, tell the future, do fortune telling and things like that. And she was owned by some guys who were taking advantage of her, men who owned her and was exploiting her um, for this demonic spirit that was in her, giving her the ability to do this, and they were making money off of her. They were making profit. And she was following Paul and Silas around, and she did it for days. And she was yelling out, proclaiming to everybody around, these men who are proclaiming a way of salvation to you are from the, the, the one true God. And so what she was saying about them was true, but, but she was being driven by and, and, and being manipulated in this, in this demonic, sinful system. And, and Paul did not want that to be associated with the gospel, and it says that he was greatly annoyed. And I love that Paul gets greatly annoyed, um, because it makes me feel better when I do. And uh, he says he was greatly annoyed, so he, he cast out the evil spirit from the young girl which which infuriated the men who owned her because now when when that evil spirit left her so did her ability to be able to tell the future and so that rendered her useless to the men who were exploiting her for money and they are furious mad they come against Paul and Silas and they incite a riot They incite basically an uprising, a riot of people against them, enough to cause trouble that the magistrates, the the civil authorities, um, saw what was going on and this was going to cause them trouble because it's their job to keep the peace. And so rather than impart justice because Paul and Silas did nothing wrong that was worthy of being punished, they wanted to do whatever they had to do to get get the riot and the people to calm down. And so they, they arrested Paul and Silas. They took them. They had them beaten with, and flogged with rods and they imprisoned them and they put them in the deepest inner part of the prison, locked them up in the stocks and said, uh, we're going to keep them here. Likely, um, likely what they were going to end up doing was executing and, and killing Paul and Silas. So we saw all of that in verses 16 through 24 and then in verse 25, in the midst of the opposition, the corruption, the unjust, painful, life-threatening circumstances, we see Paul and Silas in verse 25 not complaining about their situation, not crying out to God in pain, not, not griping about the circumstances they're in, but we see them doing two things. They were praying and they were singing songs of worship in the midst of this circumstance. And so we said a couple of things uh, last week that I want to remind you of. One is that genuine worship transcends circumstances. When you and I find ourselves in a particular set of circumstances in our life, or even, we said, even in an ecstatic... I can't even say the word right. You come into a room and you're distracted by the aesthetics of the room. There it is. I I knew it was in there. When we come into any kind of situation and we give reasons that we can't worship God, 
then we don't understand genuine worship. We don't understand what the purpose of worship is. When I come into a room and I say, oh, well, I can't worship because it's too hot or it's too cold or I don't like the color of the walls or the music doesn't, that aren't my, these aren't my favorite songs or the preacher's preaching too long or whatever, whatever excuse you want to give. Like we've not got our mind set on worship. We've got our mind set on ourselves when that, when that is our heart and our attitude. But when, but when we're really worshiping, it transcends circumstances. And we see this in this example of Paul and Silas. They are in the worst circumstances that any of us could think of, but yet their hearts and minds and voices are worshiping. They're praising God for who he is. And that second thing is when we view our God, view our view of God controls our view of circumstances, the result would be joy. And, and we talked about how there's sort of a flow that we can fall into that, that will mess us up. Say, so why is it that we have a wrong idea of worship? Is because we see God through the filter of whatever circumstance or surroundings we find ourselves in. And so when our circumstances are bad, we'll have a, a bad view of God or an inaccurate, unright view of who God is. And so we'll let that determine the way we worship him. But what Paul and Silas were able to do is they see their circumstances through the filter of what they know about God. God is in front of the circumstances instead of behind the circumstances. Does that make sense? They see God first. And when we come to worship and we make God the center and we put him in front of whatever circumstance we are bringing into the moment or bringing into church with us, if we can, if we can move God in front of whatever circumstance it is, then we will be able to worship no matter what the circumstance is because we see him first. And, and everything, every circumstance that we see goes through our view of God where we said last week, Paul is able to look at circumstances like this and call them light and momentary afflictions. That you can see what's going on around you and it may be a nightmare. But when you see it through the filter of who God is, then it's not near as bad. It puts things in perspective. And so that was what we see through verse 25. And there was nothing about their circumstances that made them begin. There was no change in their circumstances that prompted them to start worshiping. Right? Their circumstances were bad. And they began to worship in the midst of those same circumstances, I want you to notice, and we're going to kind of camp out on this principle this morning. There was nothing about their circumstances that changed that caused them to begin to worship. They were worshiping in the midst of those, of those bad circumstances. There was nothing that changed that made them desire to, to worship more or gave them a greater ability to worship more. It was all the same. There was no change in their circumstances, but we're going to keep reading the story. But what we find is that their circumstances did change. They weren't worshiping because their circumstances, circumstances changed. But in the midst of their worship, things did change. Some big things changed. And that's what I want us to see. We're going to pick back up with verse 25, which is where we ended last week. And we're going to read further, okay? So Acts 16, verse 25. 
Again, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because we are all here. So in the midst of this genuine worship that Paul and Silas were experiencing in these horrible circumstances, we see a supernatural change in their circumstances. And this is something that I, this is a reason that I wanted to break this story up into two parts. I didn't want us to directly go to this because I, I wanted us to really sit in the moment of understanding that they were worshiping without a promise of changed circumstances. Okay, if we could very easily read this story and think, oh, well, the reason they were worshiping was because they were hoping God would do something like this. That's not why they were worshiping. They were not. And, and, and here's a point I want you to take this morning. If we worship God in hopes to gain something in return, we make our circumstances the center of our worship, not God. This is something really important that if we just read this story all the way through, it would be really easy to try, to try to make that con a connection between things where there really isn't a connection. This was not Paul and Silas coming up with a strategy on how to get out of jail. This was them submitting to the sovereignty of God Worshiping him in the midst of whatever circumstances he brought into their life. But what, what we see here is he does change the circumstances. But that's not, a, that's not a promise or a motivation for why we should worship. Um, it would be real easy to think if I want God to fix my bad circumstances, I need to worship him. And then if I worship him, maybe he'll change things. That's also an incorrect way for us to view worship. To think that it's a, it's a fix. There's bad things going on in my life, God, and I need you to fix it. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship you in hopes that me worshiping you will, will motivate you to do something to fix my problems. If that's, if that's what we're thinking, we're not going to say that. But if that's where our heart is and that's what we're thinking, we're making ourselves the center of our worship, not God. We're making our circumstances the center of our worship, not him. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan was quoted and says this, Anyone can praise God when the prison doors are open. The soul of someone who is set free in Christ can sing in the prison. That... Worshiping God when, because he takes away circumstances, anybody can do that. If, that. if that's our motive. However, even though this is not our motive, 
we can see in this story that God did respond to their worship. They were praying and they were singing songs of praise to God and he did respond, but God responded for his purpose and in his power. Not for their purpose and not because, not because they were singing. Do you believe that God will respond to our worship? Yes. We can look at this story and say we don't worship to get God to change our circumstances, but we can definitely see that there's an example here of God responding to the worship of his people. And this is all throughout Scripture. This is all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want us to look in Psalm 22 for a moment. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 5. This is, this is what David wrote. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry, day, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. Look at verse 3. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. Now this is a psalm of David. And David wrote this psalm in worship to God in a time when he was under a lot of trouble. He was in a lot of distress. But at the same time, Psalm 22 is a psalm of prophecy. It's a prophetic psalm. Because these were the words that we, the words in verse 1 of this psalm are the words that Jesus would quote in his last hours on the cross. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? You may not realize it, but Jesus was quoting the words to Psalm 22. So this was a prophetic psalm, speaking of what, what would happen later with Jesus. And the overall theme that David is writing to God is, is David saying, you are holy, God, yet you feel so far away. I recognize and I know who you are, but right now I feel really far away from you. But our ancestors praised you. They were faithful. They praised you and they trusted you and you delivered them. And so I'm going to do the same. I'm going to be faithful to praise you and trust you in the midst of my circumstances. And verse 3 says something really powerful. It says... But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Some translations may say um, that he inhabits the praises of his people. And that word enthroned in the Hebrew, it's a word that means that God sits on or dwells in. Think of literally like, like a king that sits on a throne. He, he, he sits on it, he's in it, he's present in it. And so what is it that he dwells on? What is it that he sits in? And it says he sits in the praises of Israel. And that word for praises means words, songs, proclamations 
of who he is. And that God sits on the, on the words of praise and the songs of his people. That he's enthroned on them. That tells us that God is present and glorified when his people lift his name in honor. God enjoys the worship of his people and he draws near to us. There is something about the presence of God that, that dwells in and, and, and loves to linger and sit on the praises of his people. We invite the presence of God into wherever we are and whatever circumstances that we're in when we sing songs to him, when our hearts worship him, whether we feel like it or not, without even a whole lot of hope that things are going to change. But when we sing songs and we praise him, David said, you're enthroned on the praises of Israel. You sit on and you dwell in the words of praise that come from your people. And so, here's the next point. God responds to our praise with his presence. I'm not telling you that God responds to your praise by fixing your life. I'm not telling you that when things are bad... When your, when your relationships are bad, when your finances are bad, when, when whatever circumstances are falling apart around you, I'm not telling you that God will respond to your praise and worship by fixing that stuff. That's not the promise. But I think there is a promise in what David says in this psalm to say God doesn't always respond to our praise by fixing the stuff but he does respond because he draws near. He comes. And he responds to our praise with his presence. The power that came into that prison that night was not the power of their singing. I don't know how, what kind of singers Paul and Silas were. They might have been awful. They may have been really bad at singing. The power that shook the, that shook the ground, that opened the doors of that prison and made every chain that was on every prisoner in that prison fall off, that was not Paul and Silas. That wasn't anything, there was nothing about their song. It wasn't, it wasn't this emotional thing, like maybe when we're in church and there's a song that we really, really like and we're singing it and we get fired up emotionally and it's like, oh man, I just love this song, it's so good. That's not what was happening. The power that, that changed the circumstances was the power of the presence of God that came into that prison as they were worshiping him. Our worship will not magically change our circumstances, but God's presence draws near when we praise him. And when God's presence comes into our life or into this space or wherever we happen to be, doesn't matter where you're worshiping, doesn't matter what circumstances they are, when God becomes present in that, he can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> he can do things that, that are beyond your expectation, things that you haven't even thought about that he could do. He can do whatever he wants, and he can do it supernaturally. He does that here. This is not a normal thing. Like just an earthquake would have shaken everything, 
But we're talking like this was so particular. The earth shook the prison. Every door in the prison went open and every chain on every prisoner fell off. That's not the natural consequences of an earthquake. God did that. The presence of God did that. Not, not their sin. They didn't raise the roof loud enough that it made the, made the chains fall off. That's not what happens. It's the presence of God. And so we see God respond with his presence by supernaturally freeing all of them. And then we see the guard. It says the guard, the guy who was put in charge, who said, you make sure these guys don't get out. He sees. It's likely not even that he may have been in the prison. He may have been living like in a, in a place, a house, like right next door or outside. But he wakes up, obviously, because it shook everything. He wakes up. And he runs and he sees all the doors open. So he makes the assumption they're all gone. And he knew what the rule was. The Roman rule was whoever was in charge of a prisoner, if that prisoner escaped, that person had to suffer the consequences that were coming to that prisoner. If that was a prisoner that was going to be executed, guess what? You let him go, we're going to execute you instead. That's the rule. That's the accountability. So he sees the doors open and he knows. He's like, I'm a goner. I'm, I, I, am, I am dead, literally. And so he takes out his sword and he starts to kill himself. He's just going to take his own life right there. He's like, this will be less painful and less humiliating for me to just do this right now than, than to go through what I know I'm going to have to go through. So he's ready to just, he lost all his hope and he's about to run himself through and Paul yells out to him. Somehow he, he, he sees or knows what's going on. And Paul says, hey, wait, 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 wait don't do that. Nobody's gone. We, we, nobody's left. We're all still here. Y'all, that's, that's a miracle. That was a, that was a work of the presence of God in the fact that, that nobody left. And you say, well, why did they? It wasn't just, you might expect Paul and Silas to sit there. But what about these other prisoners? They're all still sitting there. Nobody has left. And you say, why is that? I think it goes back to verse 25. It says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs to God and all the prisoners were listening. They were paying attention to what was going on. And, and, and maybe it was just the awe of the, of the miraculous nature of the moment. And they knew, they, they could see that even if they believed or didn't believe in, in the God that Paul and Silas were singing to, they knew that there was something supernatural going on. And they were in awe of it. And, and, they, and they stayed, maybe, maybe out of fear, but maybe just out of awe in the moment. Maybe there were some of them that were like, I'm not, I'm not leaving. Like, this is, this is incredible. I've never seen anything like this before. I'm staying right here. So there, there was a purpose. Let's keep reading. For, and, and go back to Acts 16, verse 29. So he calls out to the jailer and says, Don't kill yourself. We're all still here. Verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. 
He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Here's the the last point. Worship sets the stage for the gospel. The jailer obviously was impacted by the nature of the miracle. But you know he heard. You know that he was listening along with all the prisoners. He had heard. He he would have been familiar with the message and the preaching of Paul. He would have heard all the things that they were preaching, all the things that they were singing, the things that they were praying. He He would have heard all those things. And he was driven and and, and impacted by the the testimony of their unreasonable worship. It was was beyond reason to him how they could do that in the circumstances they were in. And he saw the supernatural nature of God's response. So what he saw was two men worshiping unreasonably in a situation where it, it, it didn't seem like there was any reason for them to worship. They, he sees a supernatural response from God to that. And then he sees the testimony of not just the, the response of God, but then he sees the response of, of these people, of Paul and Silas, to the response of God. So it's like they worship, God responds with his presence, he does something miraculous, and then Paul and Silas respond to what God has done by doing what? Sitting right there and not going anywhere. And and this also helps us understand what Paul and Silas' heart was for worship. We know that they weren't worshiping God to to get their freedom because if that was their goal in worshiping, the minute those doors open and the minute those chains fell off they would have hit the door they would have been gone if that was their motive if that was the reason they were worshiping God please free us please get us out of here then as soon as the doors opened they would have they would have bolted they would have taken off but they didn't and I think this encounter with this jailer was the reason Paul knew that there was a purpose for what was happening in that moment And that purpose wasn't to get them out of jail. The purpose was for the gospel. What was happening was not all about Paul and Silas. It was about the prisoners and it was about this guard. They weren't seeking the the glory and the will of God... They were seeking the the glory and the will of God more than they were wanting to escape. 
And we have, to, we have to really evaluate our hearts. That When I bring my worship to God, am I, am I seeking the will of God and the glory of God more than I'm seeking a change in my circumstances? I believe that Paul knew the purpose wasn't just for he and Silas, but it was for everybody else around them. John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says something very important. He says, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So John quotes Jesus in his gospel here in verse 32 and then in verse 33 He says Jesus was making a direct reference to the cross. He was speaking to his disciples and he was was telling them directly when he says, if I am lifted up, specifically he he was absolutely referring to his crucifixion in the way that he would die. But I think he was talking about more than just that. Because that word in the Greek is a term that can be used literally, And can be used figuratively. The same word that Jesus uses for if I am lifted up. That word lifted up can be also translated exalted. Not just physically taken from one elevation and and, and lifted up to a different elevation. That's also what that word means, literally. But there's there's also a figurative picture of exaltation. To lift something high. And you think about the literal nature of Jesus being lifted up. He was lifted up at his crucifixion, right? Lifted high. And then at his resurrection, he was also lifted up. Literally out of the grave. And then at the ascension, when he returned to go to the right hand of the Father, he was also lifted up. Three times, literally, Jesus bodily was was lifted up lifted high but there's an even better understanding of that phrase as as is translated in the english rather than rather than saying if i am lifted up there's there's another way to see it that's probably a little little better to read it when i am lifted up that means that I, I believe that this means for us that when we preach And we sing and we praise him as the crucified and resurrected Savior. We are exalting Jesus to which he responds by drawing lost sinners to himself. You say, what is is one of the effects, the, the promised effects of worship? We can say that that scripture does tell us not that it's going to fix all of my problems, but one, God will respond with his presence. I think we we can draw that and know that as a promise. And then the second promise is that when we exalt him, when we lift him up with our praise and our worship, he will draw people to himself. It's all about the gospel. Worship, our motive Part of our motive for worship should be exalting Jesus, lifting him up so that he can draw men to himself. And Jesus says that he will draw all men to himself, not that we will. And this is something that as a pastor and and, and maybe as a worship leader, 
we have to really pay attention to. Jesus said, I will draw all men to myself. We have to fight the urge to produce a response in people in our worship. If, if I intentionally, and, and, and it's a battle sometimes, for those who preach the word and also for those who, who lead in musical worship. Of course, I would love to see a response to every sermon that I preach. There's not, a, there's not a preacher alive who wouldn't say it makes them happy to preach a sermon and extend an invitation or a time of response and have the altar full of people. To have a line of people line up to say, I want to give my life to Jesus for the first time. I want to respond to the gospel. Of, of course. But we have to make sure that we aren't trying to manipulate what we do and manipulate our worship and make it so that it produces that kind of response in people because that's not real. I can learn how to articulate my words. I can, I can learn psychology and learn all of the tactics to be able to, to present my message to you in a certain way and say it in certain... I can use stories. I can use emotion. I can use all of these things... For the wrong purpose. To try to, to try to raise up in you some sort of response that will, that will make you want to respond to something that you, that, that's not even genuinely of the Lord. Worship leaders can do that. We can do that with our music, can't we? And we see churches, we see examples of churches who, who do that. That's a tactic. Do you know... That there are, are there are pastors who have literally been known to pinpoint particular people in the congregation, plant people, so that when it becomes time for the response and for the altar call, that they have planted people in the congregation who will get up and come forward, planned to try to motivate other people to do it. It's not genuine. They're not responding to anything. It's like I would literally go to you and say, hey, when it comes time for the invitation, I need you to just get up and come down here and, and act like you're praying. Because it might make somebody else want to do it. Y'all, what are we doing? What is that? Do we not think Jesus is enough? Do we not think... That the power of his presence in a place where we are genuinely worshiping and lifting, lifting him high. Do we think that he can't do that all by himself? He doesn't need me. I can't add anything to that. Our worship should spotlight the gospel. Every, everything that we sing, everything that we do should just shine a big, huge floodlight. On the gospel of Jesus. And let that be it. Not, not on us. There's nothing attractive. There's nothing that we have that can add anything to that. So we see in this, this miraculous story. There's a couple of promises. One that when we worship. God responds with his presence. 
And that when we worship and lift, live Jesus high and, and highlight the gospel, that he will draw people to himself. He will change lives. But he does not promise to take away our bad circumstances when we worship him. That's not the promise. And again, this is why I wanted us to separate those two. He doesn't doesn't say, if you worship me, I'll fix all your problems. Your marriage is, is in shambles right now. You just sing songs to me and come to church, I'll fix your marriage. Or I'll fix your finances. You're broke. You just come to church and sing songs and lift me up, and then I'll... I'll fix it like that. That's what so so many. That's what the whole prosperity gospel is built around. Do all of these things. Give all these things to God, and He'll 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 pay you back, folks. He's already done that. What more do you want than the cross? What more can He do for us? If he did nothing else for us, ever, for the rest of our lives, he would still be worthy of our praise. If if he did nothing. So we want our worship here at First Baptist Lindale to be a right response to God. Inviting his presence into our church and into our lives and lifting up the good news of the gospel. And I think that if we are faithful to that, if we do these things with a right heart, Jesus has made the promise that I will change things.